0: Kind of Murdery contains adult themes, explicit language, and descriptions of violence. It is not suitable for anyone, and we recommend you stop listening now.
2: True Crime with a dash of the paranormal, the garish, the strange, and the darkly comic. I'm Zevin Odelberg, and you've found your way to Kinda Murdery, a place that means more than just murder. It's my very own pocket dimension, home to a curated collection of bizarre and compelling stories. The unsolved, the unsettling, and the unbelievable. I cover it all, just so long as it's Kinda Murdery. Hey everybody, welcome to this Sunday edition of Kinda Murdery. I'm your host Zevin Odelberg, thank you for choosing to spend your precious time with me. You've found your way to part 3 of Wheels, Barrows and Blood, the Badlands Romance of Bonnie and Clyde. If you haven't heard parts 1 and 2 yet, please go back and listen to those now. If you're all caught up, stay right here and I'm just going to jump straight into the story because we've got a doozy today. As always, I'll rewind just a bit to let you settle into the narrative. Also, corrections and retractions. Listening to the end of part two, I realized that I said that the speeding car was a few hundred miles away. I meant yards. Not miles. Obviously, two men sitting on a porch couldn't see a car that was a few hundred miles away. So when you hear that part at the outset of today's story, just know that I mean yards. I am, after all, the furthest thing from infallible. Alright, here we go. Welcome to part three of Wheels, Barrows, and Blood. It's beloved Eddie Munson time again, you're ready, I'm ready, so let's heavy metal. Kinda Murdery starts now. The capture of the Barrow brothers themselves was as far from a solution as ever. They had again dropped out of sight, but heartbreaking past experience told law enforcement that they would not be missing long. And indeed, that dread assumption would prove true. Steve Pritchard, a farmer living on the Salt Fork River seven miles north of Wellington, Texas, sat on his front porch on Saturday night, April 10, 1933, talking to Lonzo Carter, who lived at the Pritchard home. Pritchard heard the roar of a motor. Looking up, he saw a car speeding down the highway toward them. It was only a few hundred miles away. Well, gee, that fellow is really traveling, he remarked to Carter. Before Carter could answer, the car lurched over an embankment and disappeared. In an instant, flames leaped high in the darkness. Bounding to their feet, Pritchard and Carter sprinted toward the scene of the accident. The fire burned brighter. As they neared, they could see the car. It had landed top down. Illuminated by tongues of flame, two men were tugging a third person pinned in the wreckage. Suddenly, the flames reached out. The pain-borne scream of a woman split the night. With a final burst of speed, Pritchard and Carter reached the car. Help us! Help us! one of the men pleaded. Facing the almost unbearable heat, the farmers bent their shoulders to the task. The hot metal scorched their hands, and acrid fumes tortured their lungs as their muscles taunted. With a desperate heave, they lifted the car. A red-haired young woman was dragged from the tangled mass and carried to the roadside, where she writhed with pain. Her arms were seared to the shoulders, and the lower part of her face was white with blisters. Pritchard and Carter looked up and down the road, hoping to stop a passing motorist and get the woman to a doctor. The men with her ran back to the car and jerked something from the rear seat. Where do you live? Angered by the curt tone of the question, Pritchard was about to give a sharp retort. He forgot the intention. Suddenly, the farmers were covered by automatic rifles. Pritchard pointed toward his home. Carry the girl up there. There was nothing to do but obey. With the rifles close at their backs, Pritchard and Carter carried the young woman to the house and laid her on a bed. Quickly, Pritchard prepared a paste of baking soda and spread it on her burns. The gunman moved throughout the house nervously, as though uncertain what to do. The woman was suffering terribly. Her groans echoed through the rooms. Plainly, she needed medical attention. Let me call an ambulance, Pritchard pleaded. The girl should be in a hospital. No, no, we can't afford to do that, the outlaw vetoed the suggestion. It's impossible. You'll have to take care of her. For several minutes, the bandits kept the nervous pacing. Then one of them said... You watch these fellows. I'm going back to the car to get the rest of those guns. Left with only one guard, Carter watched his chance. Catching the outlaw in a second's relaxation, the farmer sprang toward the rear door, the desperado whirled. He shouted, Come back here! and raised his rifle, but Carter was gone. He ran madly to a neighboring farmhouse and telephoned Sheriff George Corey at Wellington. Corey picked up City Marshal Paul Hardy on the street and sped toward the Pritchard home. I should kill you for that! the guard threatened pritchard well i've done everything you told me to do and i'm not responsible for what that fellow does the farmer insisted the bandit seemed to weigh the defense for a moment then he said i guess you're right a sharp rap sounded at the back door with a cry of rage the outlaw whirled and brought his gun into position expecting an answering blast pritchard leaped to cover The desperado's rifle roared. From outside there came a scream of pain that froze both men in their tracks and brought a look of surprise and disbelief to their faces. The scream had come from a woman. Springing to the door, Pritchard swung it open. Into the house staggered his daughter-in-law, Mrs. Jack Pritchard, who lived nearby. Sobbing, she held out her mangled right hand. Hurting the injured woman and Pritchard before him, the outlaw drove them through the house into the front yard. Jumping from her bed at the sound of the shot, the badly burned woman followed. In a moment, the second outlaw panted to the house, his arms filled with rifles. Soon, a car swung into the Pritchard driveway. It skidded to a stop at the back of the house, and two men got out. Sheriff Corey and Marshal Hardy burst in the back door, revolvers ready for action. Finding the house empty, they went to the front porch and peered into the darkness. They were silhouetted sharply against the lights in the house. Unseen by the authorities, the outlaws crept toward them. Slipping alongside the porch, they gained positions behind the unsuspecting men. Suddenly, they leapt out, whisked the weapons from the officers, jerked a pair of handcuffs from the pocket of Marshal Hardy, and fastened the pair together. The entire capture was accomplished in one unbelievably fast, coordinated gesture. The surprise had been so complete that the brave effort to resist made by the officers was predestined to failure. Hopelessly trapped, the luckless captives were forced into Sheriff Corey's car. The outlaws piled in after them and fled with their hostages. Pritchard hurried his daughter-in-law to a hospital where it was said it might be necessary to amputate her hand. Then, he organized a search for the kidnapped officers. Fearing that the captives would meet death at the hands of the desperate men, scores of citizens responded to the alarm and authorities in the surrounding towns stopped all cars in an effort to intercept the abductors. But protected by the darkness, the outlaws in less than an hour dashed from the Texas panhandle into western Oklahoma. 3 hours later, while his anxious neighbors still searched, Sheriff Corey telephoned authorities at Sayre, Oklahoma, that he and Marshal Hardy had been released unharmed near Erick, Oklahoma. Their captors, the sheriff said, fled westward toward Pampa, Texas. On the road between Erick and Pampa, officers found Sheriff Corey's car, but the fugitives, taking to side roads, eluded them. After they seized the officers, the desperados drove madly until they crossed the Texas line. Once in Oklahoma, their spirits brightened. They chided their prisoners. "You're in a fine pickle." One of the men told the sheriff, "'I'm Clyde Barrow. Guess what that means for you?' Grimly, the sheriff thought that it probably didn't mean anything pleasant. A short distance outside of Eric, the outlaws were met by a man in another car. They talked to him a moment, then the three approached the captives. "'This is just as good a place as any to get rid of these fellows,' one of them said. The officers were ordered out of the car, their hearts sinking, they were marched to a tree that stood in a pasture near the road. Some barbed wire was twisted from a fence." With it, they were bound securely to an oak. "'Are we going to kill these men?' the newcomer asked. "'Nah,' Clyde Barrow replied. "'I've had them with me so long I'm beginning to like them.' The outlaws returned to the cars and drove away. Thirty minutes later, the officers succeeded in freeing themselves and hurried to a farmhouse and telephoned news of their release. As soon as Chief of Detectives Ed Portley heard of the Wellington affair, he telephoned Sheriff Corey. Corey told him he'd examined the pictures of the Barrow brothers and was certain they had been his captors. The woman, he said, was Bonnie Parker." he had been unable to identify the third man. Portly assumed he probably was the mysterious third man who had been present at the Joplin murders. The sheriff said he believed Bonnie's burns were serious and it was his opinion that the gang would have to hole up somewhere until she recovered. It seemed he was right. The Buddy Barrows were not seen for 10 days. H.D. Humphrey, who had been a marshal of Alma, Arkansas, less than two months, was walking past the commercial bank the morning of Thursday, June 22nd, 1933. Suddenly, he was grabbed from behind. His arms were pinned at his side and a hand was pressed over his mouth. Lifting him bodily, the assailant carried him into the bank and bound him to a pillar. Recovering from his surprise, the marshal looked about him. Two bandits armed with rifles were in the bank. One of them held the employees at bay, while the other rolled a small safe over the marble floor, through the door, and onto a waiting truck. The robbers escaped with $3,600. The looting was accomplished before persons passing on the street were aware it was even taking place. By the time the news was spread, the bandits had a good start, and although a pursuit was started, the outlaws succeeded in reaching some inaccessible hideout in the Ozark Mountains. While no one blamed Marshal Humphrey for his unfortunate capture, he was deeply humiliated by the experience. To Intimates, he confided that he would never rest until he had sent the bank bandits to prison. The next evening, June 23rd, two bandits rushed into the Piggly Wiggly grocery store at Fayetteville, Arkansas, 50 miles south of Alma, just at closing time. Shouting threats of death at the clerks, the outlaws emptied the cash till and fled toward United States Highway No. 71, toward Alma. Witnesses to the robbery obtained good descriptions of the bandits and their car, which was a 1933 model Ford carrying Indiana license number 225-464. Officers at Fayetteville telephoned Vernon Humphrey, son of the Alma Marshal, and gave him the descriptions of the gangsters and the license number. Young Humphrey was a manager of the AHC garage situated on Highway Number 71 at the outskirts of Alma. The robbers, if they stayed on the highway, would have to pass his garage. Vernon Humphrey at once warned his father and A.M. Salyers, Deputy Sheriff of Crawford County. Salyers and his car picked up Marshal Humphrey and they drove to the garage where the Marshal's son gave them detailed information. Salyers saw the look of determination that came onto the Marshal's face as he heard the description. The deputy knew what it meant, but he didn't say anything. It was Marshal Humphrey who mentioned the matter. Sounds like those fellows in the bank, he remarked coolly. Let's go get them. Armed only with revolvers, the officers started out the highway toward Fayetteville to meet the fleeing bandits. About two miles out, they saw another car approaching. Deputy Salyers slowed down. So did the other car. It was Weber Wilson, night manager of the AHC garage, who was on his way to work. Salyers was about to stop when he noticed another car behind Wilson's, driving at a high speed. Swerving to the side of the road, Salyers called to Wilson. Don't stop or that fellow will run over you! The warning came too late. With a terrific crash, the speeding car banged into Wilson's and bounced back, its motor disabled, its front wheels crushed. Wilson's car tilted and rolled over. Flying glass whizzed about the garageman's head as his car struck the pavement. Blood flowed from deep gashes on his face as he crawled free of the wreck. Wilson was furious. Believing the driver of the car which struck his was a drunk, he snatched up two large rocks and started after him. Suddenly, he dropped the rocks and ran for his life toward a patch of timber. The officers were about 75 yards past the wrecked cars when Deputy Salyers stopped his automobile. It seemed impossible that anyone could have escaped the crash uninjured. They started toward the cars on a run. Suddenly, Marshal Humphreys shouted a warning and whipped out his revolver. He had recognized the license plate number of the bandit car. Saliers, taking in the situation, drew his pistol. The officers ran on. Fifty yards from the bandits, Marshal Humphreys shouted, Put up your hands! The bandits threw open the front doors of their car and took shelter behind them. Guns flashed in their hands, but the exposed officers did not hesitate. Straight toward the shield of desperados they ran, with Soliers in the lead and Marshal Humphrey three feet behind him on the left. Soliers directed his attention to the man behind the right door of the car. Humphrey charged the other. The rattle of gunfire split the evening air. Bullets from a Browning automatic rifle whined past the deputy's head. Then the other bandit opened up. His shotgun roared. Marshal Humphrey staggered, as slugs tore through his chest, but he did not falter. His revolver barked on until another blast from the shotgun dropped him helpless. With Humphrey down, Deputy Salyer faced the gangsters alone, exchanging shots with the rifle-armed bandits at a range of less than 20 yards. The shotgun swung toward him. The bandit aimed deliberately. Salyer's glimpsed him out of the corner of his eye. He realized that his life hung on a split second. Desperately, he whirled and sent his last shot at the man's head. He missed. The bandit smiled grimly as the hammer of the deputy's weapon snapped on an empty cartridge. He pulled the trigger, but there was no explosion. The shotgun had jammed. The outlaw reached into the car and jerked out another Browning automatic. It was impossible for the deputy to face the two weapons without a weapon of his own. Reloading as he went, he ran to the corner of a farmhouse a few dozen yards away. With the deputy in temporary retreat, the desperados abandoned the protection of the car doors. One of them bent over the mortally wounded Humphrey and snarled, I ought to finish you right now. Go ahead, Humphrey defied them. I think you've already finished me. His revolver reloaded. Deputy Salyers stepped out from behind the house and renewed the battle. The bandits answered. Chips flew from the house a few inches from the officer's head. Bullets passed entirely through the house and lodged in the barn yards away. Salyers charged into the deadly hail. Snatching Marshal Humphrey's empty revolver from the ground, the bandits ran to Salyers' car and sped north. As long as the car was in sight, the deputy kept up his fire. When the battle was over, more than 200 empty shells littered the ground. Cars traveling the highway were stopped by the battle. A traffic jam resulted. Salyers loaded the Marshal into one of these cars. After emergency treatment at Alma, Humphrey was taken to a hospital at Fort Smith, Arkansas, where he died four days later. The Bloody Barrows had dealt death for the eighth time. Deputy Salyers and six motorists named Buck as the man who shot the marshal. The dying officer weakly agreed. The second man had not been identified. He was said to move stiffly. Perhaps he was the mystery third man in the Joplin affair, the fellow who shot Sergeant Collar. When Deputy Salyers reported the battle, Sheriff Maxey and Chief Deputy W.S. Bushmayer, with Deputies Joe Simpson and Clyde Peavy, Homer Mitchell and Bruce Jackson, rushed to the scene. The officers assumed command of rapidly organized posses. Hotly, they pressed the search in all directions. Our hearts leapt as news came from the manhunters. The posse led by Chief Deputy Bushmeyer was pressing the outlaws closely. Seven miles north of Alma, they found Salyers' car. A tire was blown and beside it stood a Mr. and Mrs. Lofton of Fort Smith. The outlaws had forced them from their car, loaded half a dozen rifles and several boxes of ammunition, and sped on. They were only a few minutes ahead. Swiftly, the posse men pushed on. Persons along the way kept them posted on the progress of the fugitives. Suddenly, news came that caused the searchers to shout for joy. The desperados had turned into a mountain trail near Winslow. It was a dead-end road. The slayers had driven into a natural trap. Eagerly, the manhunters went on. Soon... They saw the bandit car. They formed a circle. Weapons ready, they closed in. But there was no deadly charge from outlaw guns. The killers were in the underbrush on foot. The pursuit was so close they'd left behind their weapons and ammunition. At the most, they had only revolvers. Anxiously pressing the advantage, possemen swarmed over the mountainside. Meanwhile, Sheriff John B. Williams of Sebastian County was visited by a physician who'd treated a red-headed woman for burns in a tourist camp near Fort Smith. She gave a name of Mrs. Ruth McCrae of Houston, Texas. Could she be Bonnie Parker? Sheriff Williams investigated. He learned that the Barrow gang, including the mysterious third man, had arrived at the camp at 3 o'clock on the morning of June 15th and had left at 10.40, the night of June 23rd, shortly after the shooting at Alma. Investigation of the car abandoned at Alma revealed it was stolen at Hutchinson, Kansas on June 14th. Apparently, after releasing the officer kidnapped at Wellington, Texas, the gang had hidden in the Texas panhandle a day or two. Afterwards, they swung into western Kansas, then circled the Arkansas Ozarks and probably crossed part of Oklahoma. It seemed that the gang was finally at the mercy of law enforcement, who regarded it as only a matter of hours until they closed in on them. Bonnie Parker was in too painful a condition to travel well. The killers, almost unarmed, were afoot in territory well known to the possemen. Through the night, possemen searched the brush. Morning found them still pushing on in the direction of Winslow. Suddenly, news came that indicated the bandits were still in the vicinity. Mrs. John Rogers heard steps in the yard of her mountain home. Stepping outside, she met two men who appeared tired. Torn clothes and unshaved faces told her they'd spent some time in the brush. Sensing that the men were fleeing something, she started back in the house. Whipping out a revolver, one of the men stopped her. Give us the keys to your car, he commanded. I'll not do it, and you can't make me. The terrified woman bravely defied them. With a snarl of rage the second outlaw picked up a chain from the ground savagely he brought it down across the back and shoulders of the helpless woman but mrs rogers made no outcry now will you give them to us no no i won't not if you kill me again and again the chain fell the desperado did not relent until his victim sank to the ground hardly conscious if you won't give us the keys we'll fix the car so nobody can use it the bandits gave the car a shove It rolled toward the brink of a fifty-foot cliff. Exerting all her strength, the woman staggered to her feet and ran toward the car. A revolver was leveled at her. Don't touch it or we'll kill you. Mrs. Rogers paid no attention. She climbed on the running board, gave the steering wheel a twist, and sent the car against a tree. When she looked around, the outlaws were fleeing into the woods at the rear of her home. My goodness, Mrs. Rogers is a freaking hero. That woman is so brave. There was a rustling of the underbrush at her back. Possemen streamed out of the woods. Halting only to hear Mrs. Rogers' story, the manhunters rushed on. With the memory of the bruised woman fresh in their minds, they were in no mood to deal gently with the beasts of prey that fled before them. While possemen circled the district adjoining the Rogers' home and began to close in on their quarry, a man followed Dr. Julian Fields along the streets of Enid, Oklahoma. When Dr. Fields went into his home, he left his medicine kit in his car parked on the curb. The man stepped to the car, hastily examined the kit, slipped under the steering wheel, and drove away. The fellow fitted the description of Clyde Barrow. Was Bonnie Parker receiving treatment for her burns somewhere near Enid? It seemed likely. Enlisting the aid of volunteers, officers began a foot-by-foot investigation of the territory around Enid. Success, at last, seemed within reach. The outlaws were on the run. They'd left nearly all their guns behind. A few hours at most should see them captured. And then... A small bandit burst into the National Guard armory at Enid and escaped with 50 army automatics and armloads of ammunition. Uh Uh-oh. He was identified as Clyde Barrow. Clyde was preparing to make a last desperate effort to save his trapped brother, the mysterious man with him, and of course to protect the badly burned and injured, Bonnie Parker. With a small arsenal of death-dealing weapons in their possession, where will the outlaw Barrows strike next? How many more lives will be snuffed out before these desperados are captured? Is Bonnie Parker through? Or will she again play a part in the murderous depredations of the vicious gang? We'll find out as Kinda Murdery continues after the break.
1: What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At US Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join US Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.
0: Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.
2: And welcome back everyone. Thank you for taking a moment to support the brands who support Kinda Murdery. I'm going to jump back into the story pretty quick here. We've got quite a bit to cover, but I quickly wanted to shout out Cody Pierce from Belton, Texas, who will be my next sticker recipient. And also, I wanted to shout out Brian Vegso from Las Vegas, Nevada. Thank you, Cody and Brian, for being such good friends of the show. Okay, I also have three quick reminders that I feel like I was remiss not mentioning in Thursday's episode. The first, as you know, is that I have cerebral palsy and that I would love for Kinda Murdery to become a support network for people with disabilities. So if you or someone you know has a disability, physical or otherwise, and they'd like someone to connect with, someone to reach out to for support, please feel free to contact the show, kindamurdery at gmail.com or at Murdery on all social media. I think it's so important that we continue to share stories of the unique experiences that people with different challenges go through. Speaking of challenges, that leads me to my second reminder. Please don't forget. If you're struggling with depression, suicidal thoughts, mental health or substance abuse issues, there is a new free three-digit number, 988. Program it into your phone. If you're in acute crisis, please do dial 988 where you will be connected immediately with someone who's there to talk to you with someone who cares. And please do remember that you're loved and people do care. And if you're not in acute crisis, but you would still love to make a connection, feel free, again, to reach out to the show. Kindomurdery at gmail.com or at murdery on all social media. I care. I'm here for you. Okay, third reminder, a little more self-serving. Please do leave reviews. When you leave a review, it triggers algorithms on the podcast platforms that makes the show more visible, helps the audience grow, and inspires me to continue telling stories and hopefully... If possible, to do a better and better job. So, if you could just take a moment and leave a review for Kind of Murdery, that would be so awesome. In fact, I'd like to share with you a review I just received, not because it's someone saying they love the show, but because what it says about the community that we're building together. This is from Pat D2 Foxfire. It says, Love it. Look forward to it. I love every single one of these well-researched and produced episodes, very different than many other true crime podcasts I've listened to, and in the most positive way. Additionally, hats off to Zevin Odelberg's work and efforts to share his story as well as reach out to others, making each of us feel like part of the family. Thank you so much, Pat D. 2 foxfire That means so much to me. You understand exactly what I'm trying to do, and I really appreciate that that comes through. And with that... It's time to get back to the desperate flight of the Bloody Barrow Gang. Wheels, Barrows and Blood, The Badlands Romance of Bonnie and Clyde, Part 3, resumes now. Success at last seemed within reach. The outlaws were on the run. They'd left nearly all their guns behind. A few hours at most should see them captured. And then... A small bandit burst into the National Guard armory at Enid and escaped with 50 army automatics and armloads of ammunition. Uh Uh-oh. He was identified as Clyde Barrow. Clyde was preparing to make a last desperate effort to save his trapped brother, the mysterious man with him, and of course to protect the badly burned and injured, Bonnie Parker. Every precaution was taken to guarantee that the posseman would be able to match arms with the Bloody Barrows. Scores of rifles and a dozen machine guns were rushed into the mountains. Scouts were sent ahead of the main body of the posse to guard against ambush. Everyone regarded a battle as imminent. In the midst of this almost military movement, a story came to us through underworld informers in Dallas, hundreds of miles away. Clyde Barrow, it's being whispered in various dives, had reached his brother Buck. They had slipped through the posse lines in the dark and were speeding north with the weapons stolen from the Enid Armory, intending to release a brother from the Federal Penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas. We'd never heard before that there was a Barrow in Leavenworth and considered the story a ruse to divert our attention from the manhunt. Nevertheless, we notified the United States Bureau of Investigation, which sent agents to Leavenworth to investigate. They found a man named Barrow in prison, but after exhaustive examination, proved he was not related to the killers. The careful search in the Ozarks extended into two days. Then, on July 18, 1933, three men and two women in a Ford sedan swept into Fort Dodge, Iowa and robbed three filling stations in quick succession. Victims went to the office of Willis Belknap, chief of the Police Bureau of Identification, and identified pictures of the Barrows, Blanche Caldwell Barrow and Bonnie Parker. They were unable to point out the third man. Bonnie Parker, they said, still wore bandages on her arms. Word that the Barrel Gang was back in that part of the state spread quickly. The next morning, a farmer reported to Police Chief John P. McRae that a group fitting the description of the bandits had camped on his place several days prior to the robberies. The chief found the campsite strewn with bandages smeared with salve. A physician identified the ointment as a brand commonly used in the treatment of burns. Hours before Chief Lecrae visited the camp near Fort Dodge, three men and two women in a Ford sedan drove to the Red Crown Cabin Camp at the junction of United States Highway 71 and Missouri State Highway No. 59, six miles southeast of Platte City, Missouri. It was 10 o'clock the night of July 18th. The car stopped at twin cabins connected by a double garage. The men and one woman remained in the car. The second woman, whose hair was red and who wore bandages on her arms, sounds like Bonnie Parker to me, rented the cabins for the night from Delbert Crabtree, attended the filling station, operated in conjunction with the tourist camp. She paid in small change. Two men and one woman moved into the cabin on the left as one faced the building. The other man and a woman took the cabin on the right, The car was run in the garage at once, and the doors were closed. Shortly, the red-haired woman returned to the filling station and purchased five sandwiches and five bottles of beer. Again, she paid in small change. The cabin rental was renewed the next day by the red-haired woman who purchased chicken dinners that came to $10. The bills were paid with nickels, dimes, and quarters. The men and the second woman never showed themselves outside of the cabins. The afternoon of Thursday, June nineteenth, Crabtree related these unusual circumstances to M.D. Hauser, his employer. That evening, Hauser reported the matter to Captain William Baxter in command of the Kansas City area of the Missouri State Highway Patrol. Suspecting from the descriptions that the gang was the Barrows, Captain Baxter hurried to Platte City to confer with Sheriff Holt Coffee of Platte County. Shortly after Captain Baxter left, a man walked from the left cabin. He waved down a car on the highway and rode toward Platte City. He was a small fellow, about 5 feet 7 inches tall. He seemed to be about 20 years old and wore a blue shirt open at the collar. He wore no hat. Captain Baxter and Sheriff Coffey decided to raid the cabins. The captain took Sergeant Thomas Whitecotton and Patrolman L.A. Ellis from his force. The sheriff called in Deputy Sheriffs George Borden and Lincoln Baker, Deputy Constables Byron Fisher and Thomas Hullett, and his son Clarence Coffey, 19, who was not deputized. The group went to the junction to look over the situation and plan the attack. Sheriff Coffey proposed to raid the place at once. Captain Baxter was in favor of waiting for the suspects to emerge. He questioned the legal status of the raid. The officers had no search warrant. D.R. Clevenger, prosecutor of Platte County, walked into a Platte City drugstore about 8 o'clock. He noticed a small man at a counter purchasing bandages and salve. The fellow wore a blue shirt open at the collar. A man walked into the store and called to Prosecutor Clevenger. Say, I noticed there's a lot of officers out there at the junction. What's going on there? Gathering up his purchases, the man at the counter rushed from the store. Clevenger noticed he was in a hurry but thought nothing of it. And then, the prosecutor telephoned the Hauser filling station and asked for the sheriff. You'd better come over here, Sheriff Coffey told him. I don't want to talk over the telephone. Realizing that something was seriously afoot, Clevenger sped to the junction. When he heard the details, he said he believed a raid was justified by the circumstances, but he urged caution. Why take chances, he counseled. Let's call the Jackson County Sheriff at Kansas City and get an armored car out here and some steel shields and machine guns. If these people are the Barrow Gang, they'll fight us to the death. Chief Deputy Sheriff William G. Schickhardt at Kansas City received a call from the Platte County authorities at 10 o'clock. He sent Deputy Sheriffs George Highfield, James Thorpe, Lyle Smith, and William Ryan. They traveled in an armored car carrying two shields big enough for a man to crouch behind and two machine guns. Meanwhile, unseen by the officers, the young man who had rushed out of the Platte City drugstore crept into his cabin. When the Jackson County officers reached the junction, everything seemed quiet. The lights in the cabins had been out since 9 o'clock. Plans for the attack were made. The lights on the filling station were turned off. The signal was given. Quickly, Deputy Sheriff Highfield blocked the escape and the garage doors opened with the armored car. Deputy Thorpe on the seat beside him focused a spotlight on the left cabin door. Captain Baxter and Sheriff Coffey dashed to the right door. The other officers took their positions which had been arranged to avoid the danger of crossfire. Sheriff Coffey knocked on the door and called. Officers, we want to talk to you. To his surprise, an answer came immediately in a woman's voice. Obviously, the inmates of the cabin had been awake. Sure thing, officer, as soon as we get dressed. There was the sound of movement inside. In a moment, the woman spoke again. The men are on the other side. A metallic click came from within. Warned by it, Sheriff Coffee shouted, You'd better come out! A man screamed, Let em have it! There was a roar of gunfire. Bullets rattled on the steel shields as the officers swung their machine guns into action. Lead poured both ways through the garage doors. Bullets tore into the cabins. The officers were shooting largely by guess. The desperados evidently were firing from the inside doors connecting the cabins with the garages. Sheriff Coffee raised his head above his shield in an effort to definitely locate the bandits. His son Clarence saw what he was doing. Recklessly exposing himself, the boy rushed towards his father. Keep your head down, Dad! Keep your head down! As Sheriff Coffee ducked, a bullet struck him in the neck. He looked toward his son. Suddenly, the boy pitched to the ground. A bullet had smashed into his right arm, and another had struck him in the cheek. Oh, no. Furious fire showered on the armored car. Instantly, the officers in it became aware that the bullets from the high-powered rifles inside the cabin were penetrating the car's steel sides as though they were paper. Deputy Highfill winced. I'm hit through both knees, he said calmly to Thorpe. Deputy Thorpe swept his machine gun across the front of the garages, hoping for a chance hit. A bullet broke the window at his head. He started to swing the gun again. It refused to fire. A chip of glass had lodged in the mechanism. Thorpe worked hopelessly at the worthless weapon, tried to get it to work. Get out, Highfield said. There's no use both of us getting killed. We're together, Thorpe responded. You handle the steering wheel, I'll shift the gears. With bullets whizzing around them, the deputies got the car in motion. It backed away from the garage doors, lead still thudded into the body. A shot short-circuited the horn so that it sounded continuously. Believing the horn was a signal of some sort of effort, the other officers rushed toward the car. In that instant of confusion, the bandits burst from their cabins. Flame flashed in the night as the officers reopened their fire. Two women and a man appeared first, the women using mattresses as shields and the man firing two pistols, one with each hand. A motor sounded inside the garage. A man swung open the garage doors and hopped on the running board as the car emerged. The women dropped their mattresses. With a pistol in each hand, they joined the battle. Suddenly, a woman's scream pierced the air. One of the men pitched on his face. Okay, gotta pause for a second and just say, I don't want to glorify the lawbreaking and the murder and the robbery and everything that the Bloody Barrows gang did, but I just got the most badass mental picture in my head of these two women throwing down the mattress shields and pulling out a gun in each hand from behind the mattresses and just blazing away in their 1930s dresses. I mean, John Woo needs to direct a Bonnie and Clyde movie. This is an incredible scene. Okay, back to it. The women drop their mattresses with a pistol in each hand and join the battle. Suddenly, a woman's scream pierced the air. One of the men pitched on his face. Still using one pistol, a woman jerked him to his feet with her free hand. He staggered toward the car. The officers closed in. Again, the man fell. This time, he gained the car. It roared toward the highway. The officers riddled it with bullets, but it did not stop. The windshield shattered as it reached the highway, and for a moment, it careened crazily. A woman screamed in pain. The car was righted and sped away in the direction of Platt City. Clarence Coffey was rushed to Bethany Hospital in Kansas City, Kansas, and Deputy Highfield was taken to St. Joseph's Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. Neither was critically wounded. Sheriff Coppy did not stop to have his own wound dressed. Believing the outlaws would pass through Platte City in an effort to reach St. Joseph, Missouri, he telephoned Platte City. Guards were quickly posted at the entrances to the city. When the desperados did not appear there within a few minutes, it was evident they had turned off the main highway. Leaving strict orders that nothing in the cabins was to be disturbed, Sheriff Coffee and his posse of officers set out to recover the trail of the gunman. Cleve Burl, a farmer living four miles east of Platte City, told the sheriff he had been awakened after midnight by two men and two women who asked to borrow a motor car jack. One of the women had red hair. He went to get the jack. When he returned with it, the collars were gone. Burl went back to bed. An hour later, he was awakened again by the same persons. They changed a wheel on their car and left the old wheel beside the road. It was identical to the wheels on the car in which the gangsters had fled. The farmer was positive there was no third man in the car. Sheriff Coffey was certain Burl's visitors had been the gang, but what had become of the third man? Had the bandit who fell at the cabin been fatally wounded? Had he been tossed beside the road or hastily buried? For the moment, all efforts were directed toward answering those questions. About daybreak, the searchers found a bloody dress in a pasture not far from the Burl home. It was so stained its original color could not be determined. Wow, that's a lot of blood. Four holes, apparently made by Buckshot, were in the upper part. Near the dress, a blood-stained newspaper was spread on the ground. Fresh car tracks led up to it as though a wounded person had been stretched out on the paper and treated under light from the car. Sheriff Coffey believed the bandits had left the wounded man in the pasture while they changed the wheel, returning for him later. But what did the bloody dress mean? Had the woman who screamed been wounded too? The United States Bureau of Investigation had been after the Barrow Gang ever since the robbery of the Enid Armory. Sheriff Coffey now called on that department for help, which was given at once. Federal agents asked all hospitals to bring about the detention of any person seeking treatment for gunshot wounds, cooperating in an effort to trap the gang, WDAF. The radio station of the Kansas City Star broadcast the request and descriptions of the fugitives. 270 exploded shells in the cabins at the junction showed how desperate the resistance of the Desperados had been. A dozen deserted revolvers indicated how frantic the fight, but nothing was left behind to throw light on the mystery of the identity of the third man. The alarm broadcast by WDAF soon brought results. A motorist near Mount Ire, Iowa, just north of the Missouri line came upon a parked car. A man lay on the rear seat. Two men and two women bent over a little fire in front of the car, burning bloody bandages and a bloody dress. At the sight of the motorist, they leapt into the car and sped away. Having heard the broadcast, the motorist reported the matter at once. However, a thorough search of the vicinity brought no trace of the fugitives. On Sunday afternoon, July 23rd, Henry Penn, a farmer, was walking through Dexfield Park, an amusement resort midway between Dexter and Redfield, Iowa. He discovered a smoldering campfire. Strewn about were bloody bandages and a bloody automobile mat that someone had tried unsuccessfully to burn. His suspicion aroused. Penn reported his find to Special Deputy Sheriff John Love, a member of the Dallas County, Iowa Vigilante. Love examined the campsite and decided to watch it a while from the cover of some brush nearby. Later in the afternoon, three men and two women drove to the camp in two cars, one of which was a Ford sedan that had been reported stolen earlier in the day from Edward Stoner of Perry, Iowa. Special Deputy Love telephoned Sheriff C.A. Knee of Adel, who had been conducting a search for the Barrow Gang. With the deputy sheriff's burger and chase, Knee rushed to Dexter. The descriptions Love gave him convinced the sheriff that those in the park were the Texas Desperados. Quickly, Sheriff Knee called together his deputies and Love summoned dozens of the vigilante. A circle of heavily armed men was thrown about the 20 acres of the resort. However, Sheriff Nee knew the previous record of the gang. While the men already gathered stood guard, the sheriff began assembling the largest force of manhunters in the history of the state. He appealed to the sheriffs of surrounding counties, the Iowa National Guard, the Des Moines Police, and the Iowa State Bureau of Investigation. Within an hour, scores of men were rushing toward the scene of the coming battle by car, motorcycle, and airplane. They carried rifles, riot guns, revolvers, automatics, and machine guns. Some had tear gas bombs. As the officers began to congregate in large numbers, word spread that the Barrow Gang at last was surrounded and helpless before superior arms and numbers. Citizens by the dozens joined the posse with their rabbit guns. Despite all the excitement caused by the mustering of men, it was accomplished so quietly that the gangsters were unaware it was taking place. The guards were drawn so closely about the camp that they could see the flickering of the campfire and could hear the sound of men working on a motor car. By daylight, the mobilization was completed. Guards were posted on every road that a motor car could possibly travel. Escape for the killers seemed impossible. Shortly before 6 o'clock, the posse spread out and closed in. Quietly as possible, the manhunters slipped from tree to tree. In a moment, they could see their quarry. The men stood about smoking cigarettes. One of the women was frying eggs. The other was making coffee. Suddenly, one of the women glimpsed a form moving among the trees. She screamed a warning. Coppers! Coffee spilled into the fire. Pans clattered on the ground. Posse men stepped into the open with cries of, Halt! Springing into action, the entire gang snatched up automatic pistols and opened fire. Leaping back to escape the deadly barrage, the possemen took shelter behind trees and fallen logs. From all sides, there came a withering volley. That blast was the first indication the bloody barrows had of the size of the force about them. They were seized with panic. Almost falling over one another, they tumbled into one of their cars. Madly, they dashed through the woods with Clyde at the wheel. Every tree seemed to harbor a posseman. Hundreds of guns roared. The car was riddled before it had gone a dozen yards. A bullet ripped into Clyde's arm. The car swerved out of control and banged into a stump. The left front wheel crumpled, running through a hail of lead. The desperados climbed into the other car. Again, they were swept by blistering fire. They saw they could not stay in the car and live. After 50 yards, not a window remained. There was hardly a space as big as a man's hand that was not bullet marked. Miraculously escaping death, the outlaws piled out of the car. Clyde, Bonnie Parker, and the third man ran north through the woods fighting desperately. Possemen raced after them. Buck Barrow dropped behind a stump, his wife beside him. Each had a pistol. Officers circled around them, called for them to surrender. With a curse, Go to hell! Buck gave his answer. His gun barked. His wife's echoed it. They had elected to fight to the end. The guns around them spit fire. A bullet whipped the pistol from Blanche's hand. Buck... Winced. Crawling closer to her killer husband, Blanche handed him a clip of shells for the automatic. He jammed them into the gun and emptied it again. The posse's hot fire went on uninterrupted. Soon, the hand that passed the clips to Buck was bleeding. Blanche began to scream hysterically. And we're gonna pause our story right there. Please rejoin me on Thursday, September 1st, for part four of Wheels, Barrows, and Blood. The Badlands Romance of Bonnie and Clyde. And while we're talking about romance, we ought to give credit to the obviously devoted love of Buck Barrow and Blanche Caldwell Barrow, who currently are facing a hail of bullets. Alright, I look forward to seeing you on Thursday, September 1st, as the loose cannon story of the Bloody Barrows continues. Thank you so much for choosing to be here with me. I'm Zevin Odelberg, and this has been... Kind of Murdery. If you've enjoyed today's Kind of Murdery, please tell your friends and family, tell strangers, leave a review. It's the best way to ensure that I can keep telling that special brand of bizarre and terrible tales that you'll only find here on Kind of Murdery.
1: What if you could have a career?